0: Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. It's a dirty job and someone has to do it. Since
1: 2003, Mike Rowe has worked hundreds of dirty jobs for his Discovery Channel show of the same name. Since then, he's become a crusader for the workforce, a podcaster, and launched a Facebook watch series. Now, Dirty Jobs is back, airing Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on the Discovery Channel and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Hey, Mike, while you're known as the Dirty Jobs guy, that's not where you got your start. I understand it was opera and QVC. Can you tell me how the hell that's connected?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it really depends on where, where you want to start the story. You know, everybody's always concerned about how the story ends. But, you know, the the truth is, for me, it did start with dirty jobs. I grew up on a farm next wow. to my granddad, who was the ultimate dirty jobber. Problem is, I the handy gene is recessive. Right. And I I thought I was going to follow in his footsteps. And I, I couldn't. I, it just didn't come easily to me. This is a man, by the way, who could build a house without a blueprint you know a, a skilled tradesman anyway he was the guy who told me when i was 15 maybe 16 look you can be a tradesman you just might want to get a different toolbox and that's what got me thinking differently about how to make a buck and as it turns out i could carry a tune i crashed an audition for the baltimore opera when i was 20 got in and uh wound up staying for 8 years you know i just did it to get my union card so i could work in tv you know but uh the music was great. The girls were fantastic. I was dressed up like a pirate. I was 20 years old. I stayed for eight years.
1: Oh, there you go. It's, it's, it's not a bad not a bad gig when you get it. Do you ever find yourself? I know I do. Being in the media business, I pinch myself thinking I, they're actually paying me for this stuff.
2: Yeah. Some days it's just a lot of gratitude and feeling yeah. like, wow, you know, I got I got some really good cards and I got really Fortunate because it's a tough business, and then other days it's like, are they going to find me out? Yeah, I'm an imposter. You know, I mean, I, I spent honestly probably 15 years feeling like an imposter, impersonating a host. You know, pretending to know more than I did, creating the illusion of uh, of competence and knowledge in short bursts. That's what hosts do. It wasn't until Dirty Jobs actually that I realized it's better to be a guest. You know, it's better to Mm. be an apprentice on TV because then you're not really weighed and measured based on your your competence. You're simply evaluated based on your willingness to try and hell, I'll try anything. Is there something you won't try?
1: Well, I mean, is is there been a time when you've done the dirty jobs? You're going like, there is no way I'm doing that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but not for the reason you think, Um, you know, every legal, legitimate job Mm. that I showed up to do, I did. That really and truly was my only actual responsibility. You got to try it. But the jobs I passed on were jobs that didn't allow any possibility for humor. Mm. Or I wanted to do a love letter for my granddad, right? I mean, this was a, a love letter to work. And one of the things about work, manual labor that I appreciate so much is the is the sense of humor you'll find on most job sites. And I just didn't know how to make light of a body farm technician or a crime scene cleanup crew. You know, if it was on HBO, maybe. But on Discovery, I wanted to focus on feces from every species, misadventures and animal husbandry, construction, hard labor, very high places and very low claustrophobic places. You
1: know, it's, it sounds like you've got a, like a conditions of satisfaction list as part of that. I mean, which becomes a scope. And I mean, every business out there should have that list of some kind. And, and by the way, every person
2: should have their own list like that, that guides them every single day. I think so in terms of job satisfaction. And that's what everybody's talking about today. Right. Yeah, I mean, four and a half time. million people just quit their jobs last month. Yeah. we got 11 million open positions. We got what, $1.7 trillion in student loans on the books right now. So our our overall relationship with work, I think, is kind of disconnected or and fractured, really. And part of that problem is job satisfaction. Everybody wants it, but nobody seems quite sure how to get it. And you can learn a lot from dirty jobbers because really, I mean, I hate to generalize, but if you look at that show for the last 20 years that it's been on the air, and you look at those group the people as a group. Well, you can really start to see a lot of similarities. Like, why is everybody having such a good time? What do they know that we don't? Right. You could write a book on that. In fact, I'm working on one.
1: And they're hard. They're they're, they're kind of they're hard working people. They're real people. They're transparent about it. You know, and that's a that's a unique thing that you don't always see. I certainly have sat in a lot of boardrooms around the world and, you know, Fortune 100 companies. and I don't quite see the same kind of work ethic you
2: know, that you say you see every single week on your show. No. Well, that's that's a fact, you know, and work ethic is a choice. You know, it's not something you're born with. You have to choose to develop it. And, you know, the the thing I'm most proud of about Dirty Jobs is actually the the foundation that evolved organically from it. You know, I've been running MicroWorks for 14 years now, and the scholarships we award are called work ethic scholarships.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We Look, there's a scholarship plan for everybody, academic, talent, you know, scholastic, obviously. Music. I mean, there's all. Yeah, all of it. But to affirmatively look for and identify individuals who are willing to learn a skill that's in demand, willing to travel to where the opportunity is, who show up early, who stay late, who take a bite of the crap sandwich when it comes around to them from time to time, finding those people and giving them the tools they need to, to prosper in a trade, you know, that's gratifying. And I think it's important and I'm privileged to do it. C-Suite Radio. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: You know, it's hard work to do the shows. I know what that's like. Uh, People think, hey, TV's easy and busy or, you know, easy thing to do. But, you know, I mean, we're hauling around equipment, even though you're the host, you're helping out. I'm sure you are helping out with that stuff, you know, with the guys and gals that are working with you. I'm sitting here thinking 20 years of the show, more than 170 episodes, all 50 states.
2: How often do you see an old clip and don't remember the job? Dude, that is maybe the most alarming phenomenon in my life. And I was talking to Jay Leno the other day on my podcast and he, he said the same thing. You know, he, he remembers every joke he ever told, but you know, you do a few thousand tonight shows and there are entire monologues that you just don't remember. So for me, <laughs> yeah, when I, it doesn't happen as much on TV as it does online. When I go online and somebody posts a clip, for instance, like 30 years ago on QVC, this just happened the other day. I got a note on my Facebook page from Paul Anka. Paul Anka, who's like he must be 90 years old. Oh, at least, at least, yeah. And so he's online and God knows how he found it, but he he found a clip of me demonstrating the very first karaoke machine for sale in America. And it was midnight on the QVC cable shopping channel and I was singing My Way, a song that he wrote, right? And so He's playing this clip for me and I'm looking at it. And it's like, there's no doubt this happened. That's me. I'm you don't
1: remember any of it. None. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. And and by the way, at some point you thought that was a good idea.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, see, what happened to me at QVC was I I never should have been hired, right? I I I was in the middle of a an opera performance. I walked across the street to drink a beer during the intermission. And the bartender had QVC on and he was auditioning the next day, right? They were doing a national search. So um, he bet me I couldn't get a call back. So I went down there, I auditioned, talked about a pencil for eight minutes, got hired. And three nights later, (laughs) I'm sitting there on live TV talking about the Amcor negative ion generator and the health team infrared pain reliever and this whole box of crap. I didn't know what it was, but it was the craziest three years of my life, and so much of it, I don't remember because I never really gave in to the shift work. I worked the overnights, but i was I was up all the time. So I was never really awake. I was never really asleep in those days, and I was usually coming from the bar and restaurant down the street. So I usually had a few pops. I'd go on the air and I'd sit down and I'd try and make sense of gold lobster claw style safety class hanging. Onto some trinket made of burnt topaz or some stuff. I don't remember tons of it, but it's all online. Somebody posted all these old VHS videos. So, yeah, every now and then when I want to feel super weird, I'll sit down, you know, I'll pour a little whiskey and I'll watch myself doing things I have no recollection of doing. Do
1: you, do you ever? I look back on some of that stuff and I don't really get, uh, you know, thinking back, oh, I would have done that differently or something. But every once in a while, I look at something and go like, What was I thinking? What was the thought process behind that? You corny bastard, you know, something
2: along those lines. Do you get those same kind of feelings? Yeah, I do. You know, for me, I mean, aside QVC is just one long giant sphincter tightening (laughs) flop sweat. Like you you just look at that and you're like, what in the what in the world were you doing? But there's some moments in dirty jobs early on when um, (laughs) you know, when I realized that I wasn't going to host the show. I was going to be a guest. And once I made that determination, I realized, well, what would a good guest do? A good guest would say anything that popped into his mind as though he were talking to a friend. Right. So I said a lot of things on that show, especially in the first uh, in the first season. That's just pure eight year old nonsense. You know, I mean, every poop joke, every cheap sexual innuendo, all of it. I just threw everything out there. And so adults loved it because their kids didn't get it. Kids loved it because they were waiting for a toilet to blow up in my face. And before we knew it, we had this weird recipe for a show that really wasn't a show. It was a trip. You know, I, I mean, I know you've done a lot of TV, but your, your listeners should understand the thing that really made Dirty Jobs different wasn't the dirt and it wasn't the jobs. It was the fact that there were no actors, no script no pre-production, none of that. We never did a second take on Dirty Jobs.
1: And Mike, that most people don't understand that your show is the precursor for a lot of these shows I call work shows on TV, like Pawn Stars, the Pickers, all of these different shows who are nothing about just following the guys around with the camera, you know, doing their work, which is amazing that you would have a TV show, a show watching people
2: work. Well, look, I, I just figured this was 2002 when this really came around and you'll remember reality TV was a thing, but there were no reality shows yet. There was survivor. And I think Jesse James might've been making garage, making motorcycles in his garage. Right. So I took reality. I took that word really seriously. And I said to the network, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm like, guys, we can't do a second take. A second take is a performance. And if you want a show with performances in it, that's cool, but let's get a script and let's do a sitcom. You know, if you really want an unscripted show, then what you have to do is you have to shoot it just like you would, but you need one extra camera to always stay wide and to treat the whole process like a documentary. And in moments where you have to maybe change a battery or maybe a plane flies over and and bitches up the take or... Any number of things happen, you know, that get in the way of, you know, the job. That's when I would turn, I called it the truth cam. And I would turn to the truth cam and I would just tell the viewer, all right, here's what's going on. Here's what's frustrating. Here's why my job sucks today. Here's why I hate TV, right? I would make fun of it. And that did two things. The first thing it did was it put the people I was profiling at ease like nothing else could. Like when they saw me being that candid with the camera, they knew that they were actually in charge. They were the experts. And I was just there to keep the, the show on the rails. Mm-hmm. But we were really there to, to honor them. The second thing it did was it built an incredible amount of trust with the viewer, because, you know, when a viewer sees a guy crawling through a river of crap covered in somebody else's filth, you know, some of them are going to feel sorry for me, but none of them are going to expect me to try and sell them something. You know, that that guy's not going to lie to you. He's just trying to live. And when they and when they see you turn to the camera and level with them, that level of candor was very unusual. And that camera, you know, incorporated my whole crew into the show, and that in hindsight gave me an incredible amount of permission to push the boundaries in ways that a lot of other shows couldn't
1: you know and it makes people feel good about themselves which is a you know a really great thing to be able to do not only a little comedic relief you know you've got that going
0: c-suite radio Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSC. I
1: want to get to ask you about the new season, uh, which I'm just excited about. And part of that is because you visit the Crazy Horse Monument, which is in my home state of South Dakota. I love Crazy Horse. I love the family. I love the story. It's been a, a, you know, a 70 year startup. Of a of a company because they're only halfway through their journey and a long ways away from it and it literally take generations to
2: finish. What was your biggest takeaway from Crazy Horse? Commitment. A yeah. handshake between Gustav yeah. and uh, Chief Henry Standing Bear. Yeah, you know they shook hands and this guy embarked on a quest unlike anything I've ever seen. My idea, Jeff, was to go to Rushmore. Uh, I said the network. You know, I, I want to rappel down like Thomas Jefferson's face yeah. and I want to sandblast fix the his, crack.
1: Yeah. Fix yeah. the cracks or whatever. Yeah.
2: We're like sandblast his nostrils, right? Whatever they do <laughs> to maintain yeah. that. Yeah. Well, well, geez, the park service looked at me like, are you out of your mind? This is a national park. You, you, we're not gonna let you do that. I'm like, well, okay. I had to ask, but right up the road, there's crazy horse, which is bigger than Mount Rushmore. Four times bigger, yeah. but they've never taken a penny of federal money. Yeah, that whole thing is privately funded. That's all donations. So I talked to uh, Monique, you know, who was running the show there. Then I, I, I one of the sisters, one. yep, one of the sisters, and they rolled out the red carpet. They said, "You can do whatever you want. You want you want to repel down the face? You want to do this? You want to do that?" They let me work on his fingertip.
1: Oh right? yeah, which by the way, most people don't know this. I happen to know because I'm very close with the family. I've been known them for years is 11. Just the the fingernail is 11 or 12 feet across. It's massive,
2: right? It's massive. And look, it's this, it's, it's a perfect blend of intricate, precision, detailed work. I mean, there's math, there's, there's geometry, there's trig, there's drilling, there's azimuths, there's all kinds of crazy things that have to happen to get the, the work done. Right. But it's also backbreaking. It's exhausting it's dangerous you're a couple hundred feet up in the air half the time and then on top of all of it it's it's a great notion it's a commitment unlike anything i've ever seen this season on the show i'll spend a day on a fish boat and that's all you need to know about the fish boat i'll spend a day putting down an epoxy floor you know i'll spend a day hunting iguanas whatever this to your point is a centuries long project and the fact that it was begun by men who knew they would never live to see it finished. And the fact that 50 years later, it's still being worked on by men who will not live to see it finished. That's epic.
1: Unbelievable. Let me ask you one last question before we got to let you go. What's the biggest misconception
2: about the show, do you think? I'd say, I'm not sure it's a misconception. It's just not a, a complete understanding. People look at Dirty Jobs And they see a love letter to manual labor and blue collar work. And it is surely that, but it's also in equal parts a love letter to risk and entrepreneurship. People are always surprised to learn that 40, 50 of the people we featured on that show are multimillionaires. They just don't look like it. They're covered in slime or grime or crap or something worse, you know? And so there's a tendency with the show to see it in a one dimensional way. And to that point, too, some people will look at the show and see it as a cautionary tale. They'll say to their kids, for instance, you know, see, this is why you got to go to college. You know, you're going to wind up hanging upside down from a bridge with a welding torch. But the rest of the viewers look at the show and say, see, son, that's why all jobs matter. That's why dignity can be in any job and by the way that welder hanging upside down from that bridge is making 180 grand a year and so the show has given me a chance to to challenge myths and misperceptions and stigmas and stereotypes around certain kinds of jobs it's let me run a foundation that awards a million dollars a year in work ethic scholarships to kids who want to pursue those those jobs but mostly to answer your question it's a show with enormously rich complicated and important themes dressed up like a romp through a sewer it's an 8 year old getting a pie in the face while at the same time showing people a look at work and hopefully reconnecting our country to the basic definition of a good job 11 million open jobs right now right
1: amazing you know i got i'm going to ask one more bonus question here because sure. it's just another notion that picks up on me one of my conditions of satisfaction is I got to have fun at what
2: I'm doing. You seem to be having a lot of fun at what you're doing. If you're not laughing, the jokes on you. And if you can't find a way, I don't care how grim it is, you know, if you can't find a way to to see the humor in a thing, your your life's going to be unnecessarily difficult. I don't care if it's a if it's a crew of of welders or sewer inspectors or skull cleaners, I've seen it everywhere I go. The camaraderie the band of of brothers, feeling and humor, are the two most important things that people forget that exist on every construction site I've ever been to. That matters, and it just goes to the maybe the even larger point that work is so much more than transactional. You know, it's so much more, and that's why when I when I read about four and a half million people quitting their jobs in a month, it worries me. Because it's not just a money thing. There's something else going on in our country. And I, you know, if Dirty Jobs gives me permission to talk about that, you know, I'll take it.
1: Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for being a part of it. Thanks for what you're doing to be the voice for those trades. Because no one has been doing it like you've been doing it. And everybody appreciates it. And the second thing is you're showing great Americans doing great jobs, albeit dirty. So thanks a lot.
2: It's been a privilege, Jeff. Truly, I appreciate uh, your time as well. Happy New Year!
1: Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned. Let me tell you what I learned today from Mike, with a sincerity around the conditions of satisfaction that he has around the show. The, those guiding principles that we have, he's got those for certainly his life, but he's also got those for the show. What is guiding your conditions of satisfaction for the things that you do? Those principles and values that drive your business. And if you have those, you'll be able to get where you want to go a lot quicker, a lot faster, and usually a lot more profitable. And that's what I learned here on All Business with Jeffrey Hizzo. Don't forget to tell your friends. And whether you're doing a dirty job or a clean one, just do a job and do it well. Thanks.